It's amazing how much you can learn about someone by visiting their hometown. That was certainly true for me when I was in college. Uh, I had a roommate, I'll call him Justin, we were roommates for two years, and we were pretty good friends. I knew a lot about him, but when I got to visit his home on the south side of Chicago, I learned a couple things about him. At least they were enhanced in a new way. I knew that he was one of the biggest Cubs fans I had ever met. Back in 2016, maybe you remember when the Cubs won the World Series, he somehow snuck his way into game seven. I don't really know how he did. Frankly, I don't really want to know. But he found his way into game seven of the World Series when the Cubs won. It was one of the best games in sports history. It's pretty cool. But when I stepped foot in his childhood bedroom, it confirmed that he was a Cubs fan. I don't think there was a piece of free space on the wall. It was like a Cubs museum. It was incredible. I also knew that Justin loved to have fun. He's just kind of a free spirit. He always enjoyed, uh, enjoyed having fun. He was the life of the party. Me and another friend, the three of us were visiting his home. We were, we were there for like 24 hours. And the one night we were there, where did he decide to take us? Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> on a weeknight. On a weeknight. Imagine how creepy that is. Three college guys wandering into Chuck E. Cheese on a weeknight. <laughs> And to make it even worse, we're sweating buckets as we're trying to break all the records on those sports games, you know, like the free throw or the football toss, right? And then we leave the Chuck E. Cheese and he, he has this, this silver monkey that was like this tall that he stole from a department store. And he's like parading through his hometown, shoving this thing through the sunroof of his car in December. Like I'm in the back seat, just like, don't look at me, right? I knew that he was the life of the party. I knew that he loved to have fun. But uh, tragically, his dad passed away when he was an infant. I uh, didn't really know him. He was really young when he passed. And his mom, it was just he and his mom his whole life growing up. And his mom worked her tail end off trying to put food on the table and providing for her and her son. And when I visited their home, it was small. I slept on the floor of his bedroom. It was small. I sat around their kitchen table. It was small. It was a humble place. But it reminded me why my friend never gave up, why he wouldn't be denied anything, why he was kind of fighting against the odds his entire life, and he worked harder than just about anybody else that I knew. It's amazing how much you can learn about someone when you visit their hometown, when you visit where they grew up. I'm convinced that there's nothing better than knowing Jesus and living for Jesus. And I think we might be surprised how we can enhance our relationship with Christ or how we can grow in our love for him by understanding the history, the culture, the background in which Jesus lived, the land which he walked. Now, I would love to charter a 737 and all fly to the land of Israel tomorrow, but with rising fuel prices, that wasn't in our young adult's budget. So we're gonna have to settle for the next best thing. But imagine how cool it would be to to sit on a boat on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus calmed, or to see the pool of Bethesda where Jesus healed a man that had been crippled for decades, or to go on top of the Temple Mount, some of the most sought-after real estate, or, or to, to walk the Via Della Rosa, the road of the cross, and imagine what it would be like to see Jesus carrying his own cross beam. Imagine seeing the field where Jesus fed 5,000. The text comes to life in a new way. Now, we can't travel to Israel tomorrow, but our goal this summer by studying the great adventure, our journey with Jesus, by seeing the land, the place where he walked, that we can grow in our love for Christ in a new way. So I'm excited 
The land of Israel, maybe you think of it as a desert. It's not. It's almost like this fertile oasis right on the Mediterranean that provides agriculture for countries all around it. It's beautiful. It's green. But tonight, we're going to go back to Jesus' early life. You probably know a couple things about Jesus' birth. We kind of hear about it every Christmas. You probably could even recite some texts from Luke chapter 1 and 2. But my guess is we don't all understand the culture, the time in which Jesus was born. And there's some important things for us to understand. Because when Jesus was born, the Jews were under Roman occupation. They were ruled by Rome, which meant that Caesar Augustus was their, was their king. But Caesar had appointed other kings to rule over different parts of the land that he was in charge of. So he appointed a man named Herod, Herod the Great, Herod the Builder, who was the king over the land of Israel at the time. Now, interesting, Herod had a, a unique background. He was actually a half-Jew. He was an Edomite. They traced their lineage back to Esau, which was Jacob's half-brother. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. He was the father of all Jews. His twin brother, Esau, was where the Edomites traced their lineage. That's uh, who Herod was. He was an Edomian or an Edomite. But back in the second century BC, the Hasmonean dynasty, which was the ruling Jewish family, they conquered the Edomites and they forced all of them to become practicing Jews. So Herod, the half-Jew, grew up in a family that was a practicing Jew. He, he grew up Jewish, even though he's only half-Jewish. But then in BC 34, uh, when he took the throne, in a three-year battle, he defeated that same Hasmonean dynasty and took over the throne and began ruling in Jerusalem. And he ruled for just about three decades. And during his time on the throne in Jerusalem, he developed a reputation, a reputation for being quite the builder and quite the architect. Now, I want to highlight just a couple of his building projects, which you could see today if you still travel to Israel. The first would be Caesarea Maritima. Alex, if you want to throw up that picture, this was a, a beautiful spot right on the Mediterranean where he built an amphitheater. This is actually a replica of uh, almost the exact amphitheater that, that uh, Herod built. He built this beautiful palace that was out on a jetty. There were these pools and baths and markets. He built this harbor. I mean, it was, it was absolutely incredible right on the Mediterranean. It took about 12 years for them to build. Now, remember, Herod was also uh, a half-Jew, practicing, at least grew up in a practicing Jewish home which meant he had a soft, spark, a soft spot for Judaism in his heart. And he went on this massive project to renovate the second temple. Now, you remember Solomon built this beautiful, glorious temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then 70 years later, Zerubbabel came back into the land and rebuilt the temple. But it didn't look very nice. It, it, it was not a quality build. They just kind of got by. But Herod decided that he wanted to return the temple to its former glory. And Alex, maybe you can put up the next picture, which is a layout of the temple. This is kind of what the Temple Mount looked like before Herod got to it. It was half the size. It was 17 acres. Then he expanded it to 36 acres, and they used these beautiful white stones to build the wall of this new temple. Some weighed 100 tons. One of the stones he used weighed 500 tons. That is massive, and they didn't have equipment like we have today. I have no idea how they, how they accomplished that. But Alex, if you go to the next picture, you can see the only part of Herod's temple that's, that remains today. This is called the Western Wall, or what us uh, Westerners call the Wailing Wall. It's the only part of the temple uh, that Herod built that is still left standing after it was destroyed by Titus. 
in AD 70. And you can see some of the stones, how huge they are um, compared to the people. But this is a pilgrimage place for Jewish people where they go and they, they write a prayer on a little card and they stick it in the wall. But my personal favorite uh, place that Herod built, actually was there before, but he expanded and fortified it, was a place called Masada. This is an 820-foot mountainous outcropping in southern Israel right by the Dead Sea. Now, I was there in 2017. I got to go on a study trip with Pastor Jeff and some others from our church, and we visited Masada. It was a hot day. It was in the desert. And there are two ways to get to the top of Masada. One, you can be lazy and ride a cable car, a gondola. Or two, you can hike. Now, I mean, it's a pretty intense hike in the heat. Now, almost everybody in our group, they rode the cable car, but myself, Dr. Grimm, if you know Jerry from Young Adults and a couple others, decided we are going to be real men and do the hike. Now, <laughs> 820 feet, that's taller than Rib Mountain, but Rib Mountain is not that steep. This was really steep, and you'd only switch backs all the way to the top. Um, but you can imagine that building a palace on top of a place like this is strategic, Because if you're scared for your life, if there's an invading army, or if there's someone that you think wants to kill you, you go to a place like this and you can see your enemy coming from 360 degrees in any direction. And, you know, they're kind of easy to pick off when they're just climbing up the top of the side of a cliff. I like Masada because it reveals a little bit of Herod's idolization of his throne. It reveals a little bit of what we might consider his paranoia. As Herod the Great progressed further in his reign, he became crazier and crazier, more and more senile, more and more paranoid. And some of these things are even hard to believe. Um, But history uh, accounts that in 7 BC, uh, two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, he perceived them as a, a threat to his throne. So he had them executed. And his favorite wife, Mary Amney, he thought that she was a threat, so he had her executed. Before he killed her, he killed her parents, his in-laws. His daughter, Alexandra, he believed she was scheming to take over his throne, so he had her executed. Oh yeah, and Mary Amney, her brother, uh, Herod thought that he was scheming to take over his throne. So in a nice kind gesture, Herod invited his brother-in-law over for a nice game of polo in the pool and had his men drown him while he was playing polo. And then there was his son, uh, Antipater, I think I said that correctly, um, who was at one point the chief heir of the throne, and then by the time Herod died, actually had received the death penalty. And then upon his death, Herod had this uh, little addition to his will. He wanted a number of Jewish leaders who were imprisoned to be killed the day that Herod died because he didn't want anyone rejoicing at his death. He wanted there to be mourning. Thankfully, I don't believe that uh, that command was carried out. But that gives us a little bit of a picture of this prideful, this cruel, this paranoid man that was ruling in Jerusalem when Jesus was born. And Herod ruled in Jerusalem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's like a five-mile walk. Jesus was born literally right underneath Herod's nose. And it depends on which historian you ask. Jesus was born probably somewhere between 6 and 4 or 3 BC. Most historians agree that Herod died in 4 BC. So when Jesus came to earth, 
that was right when Herod was the craziest, the oldest, and the most senile. Now, you probably remember in the birth narratives of Christ, the account of the Magi, the wise men. They came all the way from Babylon, all the way from the east, journeying hundreds of miles because they saw this star in the sky that led them toward this Messiah king. So they go to the most logical place. They're looking for a king that was born somewhere in, in, uh, in Israel, somewhere near Jerusalem. So where would you go if you're looking for a Messiah king? You go to the palace, right? You go to the palace in Jerusalem, and who do they find there? Well, they find Herod. Imagine what would happen if these men, probably with all this pomp and circumstance, with an entire entourage who clearly have a ton of money, come into your palace, and they say, yeah, we're looking for the new king. How do you think that would go over with an old, senile, paranoid ruler? Not very well. The text tells us that Herod was troubled. I think it was being a little bit mild. Herod was probably infuriated. He was livid. So he talks to some of the smartest people in the room and says, I want you to go to the Old Testament and I want you to tell me where the Jews think that this Messiah King is going to be born. Probably didn't take them very long to find Micah 5 verse 2, which says this, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who's to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The Old Testament prophesies that there's going to be the Messiah who's going to rule on David's throne in Jerusalem. Okay, who's sitting on David's throne then? Oh, it's Herod. And he's born in Bethlehem, some five miles away. So you can imagine that Herod probably wasn't thrilled. And he was sneaky, he was sly, he was manipulative. So he tells the wise men, yeah, when you go find him, come back and tell me. I want to worship him too. He didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. So that sets the stage for our text tonight in Matthew chapter two. So if you're there, follow along with me starting in verse 13. Now, when they, the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all of the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. And we often put the wise men in the manger scene at Christmas, but that's probably not correct. They visited Jesus a little bit later, probably in Bethlehem, sometime when he was about a year old or maybe a little bit longer. And after killing three of his sons, his daughter, his wife, his in-laws, it would not have even phased Herod to have this order to murder these baby boys who he perceived as a threat. But obedient Joseph... Immediately when he saw the dream, he took his family by night, understanding the urgency of the angel's request. Just as they traveled to Bethlehem on a donkey, they probably used the same animal and traveled as a family of three all of the way to Egypt. That's not a short journey, Alex, if you want to put up the next picture. Probably about 300 miles all of the way from where they were uh, in Bethlehem, right in the middle of the red section of the map, all the way down to Egypt and then back. 300 miles with a toddler and a donkey by foot, it probably took them a month. 
Now, there's other scholars who believe that Mary and Joseph used the gifts from the Magi, the gold of frankincense, the myrrh, to go to the port city of Jaffa or Joppa and uh, get on a boat, pay for a ticket, and then get to Egypt that way. It's possible. Um, either way would have been a headache. Either way would have been expensive. Either way would have been a challenge. And we know that Mary and Joseph, they didn't have money. They were very poor. In Leviticus chapter 12, every good Jewish family, if they're following the law, 40 days after the child's born, they go to the temple and they offer a sacrifice for their child. The, the Mosaic law commands that the family offers an unblemished lamb as a sacrifice unless they're very poor. And then they could bring two birds instead, two pigeons or two turtle doves. What did Mary and Joseph bring when they offered Jesus? They brought two birds, signifying that they were very poor. So they didn't have money for a trip like this, but beyond the financial strain, fleeing to Egypt would have taken remarkable faith. Can you just imagine some of the questions that would have been going through Joseph's mind? How am I going to find a job? How am I going to provide for my family? Where are we going to live? How are we going to understand the language? Are we going to be accepted? Are we going to get robbed along the road or worse? Can we even make it that far with this old donkey? What about the rising gas prices? What if Herod, <laughs> what if Herod finds out that we fled to Egypt and certainly he could have us killed there. So many questions would have been running through Joseph's mind, yet he was immediately obedient. A week or two ago, uh, Hannah and Matthias and I just returned from a road trip down to Tennessee visiting my brother, his wife, and their daughter, and we had a pair of 14-hour drives. That was just one day, 14 hours with a toddler. I wouldn't you know, say that it was a really fun time, but we made it. Um, but we weren't even fleeing for our life. It was only a day. Can you imagine running for your life with a toddler on a donkey for a month? And if Herod would have found them, what were they carrying? Well, they were carrying gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which clearly would have come from the Far East. Herod knew that the Magi had visited them. If they had those gifts, <laughs> there's the evidence. It wasn't just baby Jesus that would have been executed. It would have been the entire family. The journey took remarkable faith. But God clearly protected Joseph and his family as they journeyed to Egypt. We don't really know a lot about Jesus' time in Egypt, what it would have looked like, how long they were there, or what life looked like as a political exile. But after an undisclosed amount of time, sometime after Herod had passed, an angel appears again to Joseph. Look at verse 19 in our text for tonight. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, "'Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel.'" For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, just Herod's son, was also not a very nice guy, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, that would have been in the southern part of the kingdom by Bethlehem, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to Galilee, which was in the north. And they went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Nazareth was the town that Mary and Joseph were likely from. So they returned to the north and lived there. Now, without going into too much detail on the history of when Jesus was born and when Herod died and what that means for Jesus' age when he was in Egypt, my best guess is that Jesus lived in Egypt between the ages of two and four, likely for a couple of years before they journeyed back to Israel. Jesus would have been young, but those would have been really formidable and important years of his life. You and I would probably say that some of our first memories 
come from that age window. It's when we learn many of the basics of life, from language to laughter to family to pain to emotions. Jesus probably knew some Egyptian from his time there. But we might ask, why in the world did God direct them to Egypt? I mean, couldn't he have sent them anywhere else? There's at least two reasons. The first is practical. At this time in the first century, we have evidence that there was a decent-sized Jewish community, expatriates living in Egypt. Egypt was a safe haven for Jews throughout history. But beyond practical, the reason would have been theological. Maybe you caught in Matthew chapter 2, the Matthew quoted from Hosea 11, which says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, when Hosea was speaking, I don't think that Hosea knowingly was talking about Jesus. He was painting a picture of of God's paternal love for Israel. Instead, we have to remember that all of Scripture finds its fulfillment in Christ. All of Scripture points to Christ. And what we see in Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son, is what we would call a typology. We're going to put on our theology 201 hat tonight, okay? So here's how typology works in scripture. There's a type, which is a shadow, and the anti-type, which is the substance. In this case, Israel is the type, the shadow, and Jesus is the fulfillment, the anti-type, the substance. That Israel journeyed to Egypt. They were slaves. God rescued them out of Egypt, brings them to the promised land, but they didn't fulfill the covenant. They broke the covenant. Yet Jesus travels to Egypt as an exile, returns to initiate the new covenant, the new promise. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He was the perfect high priest who atoned for the sin of all people. He was the perfect prophet and messenger, the perfect king, fully God, who will rule for all of eternity. With the rest of our time tonight, I want us to consider Jesus in exile. Just think about what he would have experienced in Egypt as a political refugee. Jesus knew what it was like to be the minority. He knew what it was like to be stared at because of the color of his skin. Jesus knew what it was like to have a place that didn't really feel like home. Jesus knew what it was like to overhear conversations that you couldn't understand because they were speaking a different language. Jesus knew what it was like to evacuate his home without warning in the middle of the night. Jesus knew what it was like to face a real death threat from a political leader by no fault of your own. Jesus understood the uncertainty of not knowing where his next meal would come from. When we think about Jesus' time in Egypt, I think it brings a whole new perspective on a text like 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, which says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he, Jesus, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by, your po- by his poverty, rather, you might become rich. Jesus became poor for us, so that by his poverty we might become rich. I want us to think, to consider Jesus' humanity tonight. That's our first principle if you're taking notes. Consider Jesus' humanity. Consider Jesus' humanity. If I had to guess, most of us have never experienced many of the things that Jesus walked through before the age of four. If you and I would have been classmates with Jesus in the pre-K classroom, 
you and I certainly would have been the rich kid in the class because Jesus didn't grow up in white, middle-class, suburban America. Contrary to the books that we read as kids or the flannel graphs, if you had those in Sunday school, or the animated videos that you've seen of Jesus, Jesus was not six feet tall with off-white skin, flowing brown hair, perfect blue eyes, and skin that came off the latest dermatology commercial. No, it's more likely that Jesus really wasn't that physically attractive. He was Middle Eastern, probably not that tall, darker skin. He was poor. He came from a poor family. He was from the wrong side of the tracks in Nazareth, which developed a good-for-nothing reputation. He appeared to be born out of wedlock and spent the first couple years of his life as a political refugee in Egypt. He worked for years as an unassuming stone carpenter, likely providing for his mom and his siblings when his dad died, likely when he was a teenager. There's no way that we could say Jesus had an easy life. And he certainly didn't have an easy beginning. Friends, Jesus knew the splendor of heaven, the glory of eternity, yet he left his throne to take on our form and our flesh. After creating the world in perfection, he chose to experience our brokenness, to experience the pain of living life in a fallen world. Jesus lived like us and he died for us so that we could know him. Jesus lived like you and me. I hope that gives us a fresh perspective on the Savior that we worship. That he knows what it's like to walk through life like we're walking through. And I hope that you know him. I hope that you've turned away from your sin, that you've placed your faith in him for your salvation. Do you know Jesus and does Jesus know you? It's the most important question that we can ask. But it is interesting to consider that Jesus spent the first couple years of his life as a political exile, a displaced person, a refugee. The conversations surrounding refugees and immigrants and displaced people have become highly politicized in recent years. But when we think about people through the lens of political policy, rather than the lens of God's word, we tend to to dehumanize people and treat them as objects rather than people who, who are created in God's image. But maybe we can think about the facts for just a moment. With the Russian invasion of Ukraine, for the first time in history, the number of global refugees, displaced people who've been forced for them from their home is now over 100 million people. That's 1% of the global population, half of which our children. When we see pictures or videos of men fleeing Cuba on a windsurfer, trying to make the 90-mile journey to the United States, we might be tempted to think, well, that looks like a really stupid idea. But when we watch the news and see a, a boat in the Mediterranean filled with Syrian refugees that's double its capacity and tragically sinks, we might be tempted to ask, what else was going to happen when it was that full? Or when we see videos or posts of Central Americans traveling by foot all the way from their country in Central America, all the way through Mexico to the southern U.S. border, didn't they know that they were going to be denied asylum? Yes, they did. 
In all three cases, they, they count the cost. That's how horrible their life was, that it's worth risking it all. It's worth risking the life of their family just for the chance. I had a better life in another country. Friends, these people, they deserve our compassion, not our judgment. These people created in the image of God are not our enemies. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25. It might be the toughest passage, one of the toughest passages in all of Scripture. Jesus is painting a picture of the final judgment, and he says this in Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, then he'll sit at his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. He'll separate people one from another as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did you see me? When did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's important for us to understand that Jesus is not saying that we earn entrance into eternity by what we do. We're not saved because of our love for other people. No, our love for others is evidence of the saving faith that's already inside of us. But when Jesus said those words in Matthew 25, I wonder if he had his early years, some of his first memories in mind as a refugee in Egypt. He certainly experienced hunger and thirst. He knew what it was like to be a stranger, to be the one in need of clothes. Jesus is clear that when we serve the least of these in our midst, it's like we're serving Jesus himself. The down and out, the outcast, the sojourner, the poor, our love for them is a reflection of our love for Christ inside of us. It's easy to forget about the plight of others around the world when we're not actively running for our life or when those that we know are not actively running for their life. But that doesn't mean we're off the hook for showing love and compassion and generosity towards those who are displaced, those who are suffering. That's our second principle tonight. Cultivate Christ-like compassion. Cultivate Christ-like compassion. Just think for a moment about the Wausau area. I wouldn't call Wausau the melting pot of diversity in the Midwest. However, I would say that diversity, economic and even cultural, cultural diversity is certainly on the rise in our area, which I think is pretty cool. I love other cultures. I love hearing people's stories. I love trying new food. And cultural diversity is something to be celebrated as a unique gift from God. Have you ever thought about how how diverse heaven is going to be? There's going to be people from all different parts of the world, but more than that, there's going to be people from every different time period from all different parts of the world. We're going to have to spend eternity learning about different cultures and hearing people's stories, people who will not be the same as us. But think about Wausau for a moment. In the last six months, central Wisconsin has received over 100 Afghani refugees who fled Afghanistan virtually overnight because they knew that they would be killed under a new regime. And in political decisions that were far above our pay grade, 
They've been resettled all across our country, including a number of families in our area. And now we have a choice. Will we be the hands and feet of Jesus, loving our Afghan neighbors, or will you shun them because you don't agree with the politics behind the decision? Or will we ignore them because we're scared of their religious beliefs? Or will we just go on with life as normal because if we don't look for them, we probably won't find them? Highland is exploring the possibility of beginning some sort of a Spanish worship service alternative at our church, which I think is pretty cool. It's a reflection of a growing Hispanic community in our area and a growing number of Spanish-speaking families that are attending our church. It's really cool. What a great opportunity to extend compassion to a group that are a vibrant part of our community. And in the words of my good friend Pancho, we will all be singing in Spanish in eternity because Spanish is the most beautiful language. (laughs) So we might as well start singing in Spanish now. We might not realize that the Hmong population in Wausau, 10% of our population currently, originally came to our area due to government resettlement following uh, the departure of America from Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And chances are that if you don't have Hmong ancestry, that Hmong culture is a little bit different than yours. But we cannot allow cultural barriers to become an excuse for us to extend love and compassion to our neighbors. So I have a challenge for us, challenge for each of us over the summer. What would it look like for us to build a relationship with someone who comes from a different culture, someone who has a different background? Maybe it means partnering with the Bridge Street Mission and volunteering with them. Maybe it means partnering with New Beginnings for Refugees, which is a nonprofit located in Wausau that's specifically working to meet tangible needs for Afghani refugees in our area. Or next week, Tuesday and Wednesday, a group of us are traveling down to the Wisconsin Dells to work with one of our missionary partners, uh, the Alwins, who work with international students. Maybe you don't realize this, but thousands of college students from around the country descend, or around the world descend on the Wisconsin Dells to work for the summer. And we have mission partners uh, at our church that serve these students and try to bring the good news of the gospel with them. Next week, we're helping with two of their cookouts on Tuesday night and Wednesday night. It's an incredible opportunity to get to know people from all around the world by traveling an hour and a half. Um, I know we, we tend to say this at young adults. I maybe shouldn't let you into this. We closed registration like a week and a half ago, but you know, if you still want to go, we might be able to sneak in. So um, you can uh, register on our Facebook page or just talk to Bobby or I. We can get you the information. Maybe it means praying a simple prayer this week. God, open my eyes to the needs in our community. Provide an opportunity to love someone who's not like me. Provide an opportunity to share with someone in need. Provide an opportunity to share the gospel with someone in need. As we wrap up, I want you to think about an airplane. How many wings does it take to fly an airplane? It's not a trick question. Two. Have you ever tried to fly an airplane with one wing? That's kind of a stupid question, right? You wouldn't be flying the airplane. Now, when we, think about, <laughs> when we think about sharing the gospel, when we think about extending Christ-like love and Christ-like compassion to people, we need to make sure we have both wings of the airplane. We need love and grace and compassion, and we need to combine that with the truth 
of the gospel. Imagine what would happen if you share the gospel with someone, but you treat them like a jerk every single day at work. Are they going to listen to you? No, exactly, Jake. They're not going to listen to you, right? Or what happens if you extend love and compassion to someone that you live next to for decades, but you never share the gospel with someone? Is it, are they going to become a Christian? Unless somebody else tells them the good news, then no. We need both. So when we show love and compassion and care and, and grace and understanding, those are gospel bridges. Our goal is to demonstrate love in the deepest way. The greatest compassion that we could ever show someone is by sharing the good news of Christ, by helping them understand that they could be safe from their sins and have eternity with Jesus forever. That's the most compassionate thing that we can do. So we don't wanna stop at acts of compassion. We wanna share the greatest act of compassion, what Christ has done, and that requires our words. My dream for our young adult family is that we can set the tone for our community engaging people of other cultures, loving those who are down and out, who are outcast, while sharing the truth of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we're excited to take a, a journey uh, to the Holy Land this summer, to learn a little bit more of the footsteps of Christ, the land in which he walked. And may our, our study just be fruitful and profitable not just an academic exercise, but a way for us to grow in our love for Jesus in a deeper way. It's great to be together tonight. What a privilege it is that you've uh, afforded to us just to be here. Um, and I'm thankful for each person that has taken some time out of their Monday night um, on a beautiful Monday night uh, to dig into your word, to dive into community and to grow. Um, so as we spend some time in our small groups tonight, uh, may you guide our discussion in Jesus' name. Amen.